The first few chapters of the Bible tell a story about a God who creates the world. In the story, God uses seven days to complete his work, but of course the work wasn't actually complete after seven days. It was simply ready to be taken somewhere. Genesis 2.15 says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. So it's done in seven days, except it's not. It's just ready to go. God set up the world to continue to create. Later, God instructs Noah to bring seven pairs of each clean animal on the ark with him because those seven pairs of animals would then recreate and populate the world. Animals couldn't be sacrificed until they were seven years old. Joshua marched around Jericho seven times. Seven letters were written to seven churches in Revelation. And then think about Jesus, often doing things in sevens. In Matthew 13, he tells seven parables. A few chapters later, he explains the seven woes of the Pharisees. And when Peter asked him how many times he should forgive someone, he replies, 70 times seven times. We see in the pattern. On and on we could go. The number seven is used more than 700 times in the Bible, and I think it's on purpose. Seven was the number of completion, wholeness. And yet there is this sense that it is simply the beginning of something new. Here's why I say all this. We finally reached the seventh sign. And it's incredibly important because this is the sign, the one we've been waiting for, number seven, the number of completion. But this one shows us completion the same way God creating the world in seven days shows us completion. It is complete, and yet it's just getting started. There's more, always. And hopefully when we see both the seventh and then the eighth sign in this episode, this entire season, and one of the beautiful layers of the Gospel of John will start to make sense. Welcome to Stories of Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. We've reached the seventh and final episode of season two, and this one is about life on the other side of death. Rabbi and his followers sat by the Jordan River. The twelve men were shaken. John had never seen them like this. They had hurried out of Jerusalem under threat. Just when they thought they were making ground, the Pharisees exerted their influence and had driven them out. A messenger runs up to them. Peter and Thomas jump, ready to act. Others get ready to run. John sees Rabbi stand calmly. He moves right off his shoulder, waiting for the message. Lord. The one you love is sick. Lazarus. Mary and Martha wouldn't have sent this messenger if it weren't serious. John fears the worst and prepares to go to Bethany. But Rabbi thanks the messenger and sits back down. Peter and John look at each other. They're struggling to understand. If they don't go now, Lazarus will surely die. And if he dies, what will people say? If Jesus can't save his close friend, how can he save anyone? The reputation they've spent three years building dies with Lazarus. This sickness will not end in death. It is for God's glory that his son may be glorified through it. His son? The familiar feeling returns to John. 
the feeling at the edge of his mind that Rabbi is more than he seems. He feels it much more often these days. They stay by the river for two more days. AT&T once did a campaign to encourage people not to text and drive. Their slogan, it can wait, which is haunting, right? Because we have a reputation to protect. So when we're running a few minutes late, it's really hard for us to resist not letting the other person know that it isn't our fault. It's the traffic's fault or our dog's fault or whatever. Being called out to wait until we get somewhere to send a text wars against our constant need to protect our own reputation. When our reputation is on the line, it's difficult to wait. Unless you're Jesus. See, one of his best friends is dying and the man's family, who he's very close to, is crying out for help. But it isn't time yet. So he simply waits. We don't really know why, don't know what he did for those two days, but from the context clues, it certainly doesn't seem like he was losing any sleep. Let us return to Judea. Now? Why now? But Rabbi, they just tried to stone you. You're going back? Man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by the world's light. What is he talking about? Walking by light? He's in danger in the light. They'll see him. Sitting by the river has taken its toll on John. He'd been used to the movement, the excitement. They'd done so much in their years together, and to just sit right when they were needed. Yes, they'd been run out of Jerusalem, but that doesn't mean they should retreat to the wilderness. They can go to the provinces and rally. Now, Jesus wants to walk straight into the jaws of the enemy. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. For our sake, you're glad he's dead? Just when I think I understand you, Rabbi, you do something even more mysterious than the last. Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem. Many people had come to comfort Mary and Martha. John felt better that they were not alone, but the crowds made him nervous. Someone might see them and send word to the high priests. John sees Martha approach the group. Mary is not with her. Lord, Martha's voice breaks. If you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Your brother will rise again. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. John feels it again. A warmth floods his soul. Rabbi speaks wild, dangerous truth. No wonder the priests feel threatened by him. He offers so much more. But, but what? Mary sat inside. She knew Jesus was there, but couldn't bring herself to greet him. Martha calls to her. The teacher is here. Martha knows she must see him. Jesus had not left the spot where Martha left him. She walks rapidly out to him and stands right in front of him, staring at him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. John is surprised at the venom in Mary's voice. Tears streak her face. She crosses her arms and waits for Jesus to respond. John has never seen Mary like this. Jesus was moved by the tears and words of Mary. Emotion washes over his face. Where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. 
Jesus stands in front of the tomb. He walks over to the stone. He places a hand on it and lowers his head. The crowd looks on as their teacher quietly weeps for his friend. I did a really tough funeral for a family a few weeks ago. It wasn't anyone's fault, but because of an accident, someone passed away way too young and the family was understandably beside themselves. So I knew all the difficult questions that were coming and as the family made their way in to talk, I was mentally arming myself with all the seminary answers to their questions. But then they entered the room and everything changed. I caught myself because what did I think was gonna happen? I'd give them a bunch of theological answers to all their questions and all of a sudden they'd be good to go, say thanks and walk out? No, of course not. Because when life happens, it's far more complicated than that. The family didn't need a bunch of answers. They needed to cry. And there is not a better example of that than when the creator of the universe in the form of a man, knowing full well how the story is going to end, takes time to weep. That's hard. It's hard for us, for me, to wrap my mind around because for some reason, weeping is so ingrained in me as a sign of weakness. But Jesus wept. That is a big old green light for us to do the same. See how he loved him? Some in the crowd remark. He opened the eyes of the blind. He could have kept Lazarus from dying. Others retort. Jesus simply says, take away the stone. Everyone looks incredulously at Rabbi. What did he just said? Take away the stone, why? But Lord, Martha says, approaching him, by now the smell will be too bad. He's been in there for four days. Jesus looks at Martha with compassion. Did I not say if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha stares at Jesus for a long moment. Suddenly her face shifts from confused mourning to joyful clarity. She steps back and nods at the men. They roll away the stone. The stench wafts over the crowd. Many are sick. John feels the smell slap his face. Jesus stays at the entrance. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I say this for the benefit of the people standing here. Then Jesus says loudly, Lazarus, come out. The world stood still. The crowd watches the entrance of the cave intently. Suddenly Mary gasps. Peter grips John's shoulders. They see movement. The first thing John sees is the hands, wrapped in linen. Then the vague shape of a man. Lazarus steps out into the sun, shielding his eyes. Jesus smiles widely and says, take off the grave clothes, let him go. And there we have it, the seventh sign, the number of completion. It's so fitting. What have all of these signs been pointing toward? The seventh sign is the proof that darkness is nothing more than a beautiful backdrop for the light to shine. Death is not the end of the story, far from it. For in him, Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness 
has not overcome it. No matter how dark things may look, light has the final say. The seventh sign, the number of completion, is a beautiful picture of light being brought back into the darkness, of breath being brought back into the breathless, of life being brought into the lifeless. So the apostle tells us a story of seven signs that each point to a greater reality for those who have eyes to see. But there's something new ready to break forth into this one, which means tomorrow doesn't have to be like it was today. God is always ready to write a brand new story in and through your life, a story saturated in life, real life, abundant life. And of course, as if that isn't enough, the seventh sign isn't the end of the story. Instead, it just sets the scene for what happens next. Mary Magdalene wept. She had come to the tomb expecting to mourn for her rabbi, but she found it empty. Someone had taken his body. She had hurriedly told Peter and the others. Now she returned to the tomb, unsure what to do next. Suddenly, two blinding creatures appeared in the tomb, one by where Jesus' head had been, the other by where his feet had been. Mary shielded her eyes from their white clothes. Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have put him. Mary's voice trailed off in pain and grief. She turned from the men, desperate to retreat to her sorrow. She found herself facing a luscious garden, flowers and trees like she's never seen, blues, yellows, reds, all more brilliant and saturated than she's ever seen. The smell reminded her of homemade bread and the sea all at once. This must be a dream. Mary reaches out her hand and feels the velvet of the nearest leaf. Okay, maybe this isn't a dream then, maybe it's a vision. Mary looks around, how did I get here? She begins to walk towards the center of the garden. The path winds lazily. Mary finds herself overwhelmed by the beauty. Finally, she comes to a small circular clearing. In the middle kneels a man, tending a grapevine ready for harvest. Mary approaches. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? The man says before turning. Mary stops short. I know that voice. But it can't be. The man stands and turns. Mary sees her rabbi, smiling. She rushes to embrace him. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The sun set on the first day of the next week, a fitting moment. Darkness had covered the world. The remaining disciples huddled in the room, doors locked, afraid the Jewish authorities would find them. Mary bursts into the room. She is breathless and beaming. The men all jump and stare. She is speaking rapidly, the words blending together. Mary, please, slow down, Peter implores. Mary catches her breath. It is Rabbi. He lives. Rabbi, impossible. John saw him die, saw them place the body in the tomb. John looked around at the other men gathered, but something had begun to change. A new presence had entered. The room brightens, the air stirs. John looks around. He can't move. A light breaks through his soul, flooding his spirit with clarity. He thinks back on the last three years. So much makes sense now. The world was not as it once was. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. John knows it. 
he could see it in the others as well. If Rabbi lives again, then that means the kingdom of God was here. But it wasn't the kingdom they all expected. His resurrection means that they are given new life, not simply a second chance, new life, a new way of living, a life full of meaning, purpose, and fellowship, a life with the Son and the Father, life eternal, life everlasting, life abundantly. As tears stream down his face, joy filling his heart, John makes his way to his teacher and friend. Jesus stands, arms out. He places both hands on John's shoulders. Peace be with you, John. Here's the brilliance of John's gospel. He didn't stop at the number of completion. Just like this earth didn't stop creating on the seventh day, and Jesus' ministry didn't stop when he uttered the words, it is finished on the cross. The finished work set the stage for the next phase to begin. The finished work was like a container. Upon completion, the container was fully built out, but the point of a container is not just to have a container. The point of a container is to use it. It's to fill that container with all sorts of useful things. So the seven signs bring this thing to a completion, but they also just set the stage for the next step. Because the sun sets the seventh day and the week ends, but then the sun rises the next day, day eight, or day one of a brand new week, a new reality. And in this new reality, death has made way for life. John is showing us that this new reality is here. Jesus has made a way for us to have abundant, full life that begins right now and will continue for all of eternity. Chaos has brought forth a new clarity, a perspective we never would have had if we hadn't gone through this storm. Of course, unpacking these mysteries would take more books than the world probably has room for. So instead, the wise old apostle takes a few pages and forms an entire story that points towards this new reality of resurrection. He tells us a story about life. The scribe barely notices that John has stopped telling the story. He stares at the words he's just written. He puts down his quill carefully, then the parchment. He's never truly been speechless, and he certainly was never comfortable with silence. His mind moved too rapidly to be still, but now? The scribe can't think of anything he'd rather do than sit in the warmth of the moment, not saying a word. He gets up from his seat and walks over to where the apostle stands. He faces the same direction the apostle faces. He stares at the horizon just as the apostle stares. The sun barely crests over the horizon. The scribe feels as if he'd never seen such colors. Blues, yellows, reds, brilliant beyond words. The apostle had told him about seven signs. Seven. Completion. God had rested on the seventh day. Abraham's sevenfold blessing, circling Jericho seven times, the seven years of abundance under Joseph, 
It wasn't a coincidence. But John had not stopped there. He had told an eighth sign, Jesus' resurrection. As the sun ascended, the scribe began to see the world differently. The light of the sunrise fills his bones. The sounds of the sea soak his lungs. He feels alive, not living alive. For the first time, all the worry, ambition, desire, and fear, they wash away. He glances over at the apostle. John is already looking at him. No words come. None are needed. The apostle simply nods. The scribe turns, gathers his things, and descends the stairs to the street. John watches as the young man heads off down the road. He notices a change in his gait. It is lighter, gentler, filled with purpose. Peace be with you, John whispers. Then he turns his face back to the rising sun. Thanks for listening to this season of Stories in Scripture. You can find more about our project on storiesinscripture.com. Please follow us on Twitter at SIS Project and on Instagram at Stories in Scripture. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. We'll see you next time for Season 3.